I would like people to, when they're writing a marketing statement, I want them to sit in front of their computer and like in their head, open their, their chest up to reveal your beating heart and then pour love into the people that you're trying to market to. Pour love mentally into the people that you want to help. Then write your marketing. Welcome to Grounded Content, where tactical and effective meet grounded and honest in advertising, marketing, and content creation. My goal is to bring you real practical advice with a mix of good conversation and a little philosophy. Today, I talk with Jessica Kupferman. She and her partner, Elsie Escobar, have created the largest women's podcasting community, She Podcasts, along with a podcast by the same name, a conference, and recently a membership program. She also has a strong marketing background. Today, we talk about understanding, building, and selling to communities, and also where your responsibility as the person selling lies. We get into some weird nitty-gritty on this one. I hope you like it. Before we start, let me know if you're able to implement any of the ideas you hear on this podcast at madmotion.com slash groundedpodcast. I've got a couple of prizes for my favorite answers. I know you as a community builder for She Podcasts. My question is, how does community building relate to marketing? When you do marketing correctly, if and I do believe there is a correct and an incorrect way to do it, although the definition may differ for everyone. But when you do marketing correctly, you will naturally build a following that is, I don't want to say drink the Kool-Aid because it makes it sound like I'm being manipulative, but I really... It, you you create a following that is enthusiastic about the same, same things you're enthusiastic about. And in a lot of ways, I think community is important. And I've always thought this because they're your first line of, you know, they're the front line of your sales. They don't know it and they're not signing up for that. But when you need someone to stick up for you for whatever reason, or if you need a review or a testimonial or someone to say, yes, she's not she's not full of everything then then they're your they're your people so they're i think it's really important to build community i've always had a good, a good community even though i've rebranded my business over the years many times you mentioned it is there a line between manipulation and driving people towards an action that you want them to take yes the line is it becomes manipulative when A, you know your product isn't worth very much or B, you know people don't need the product they're buying. That is the line. I mean, as far as how to get people to buy things, I, I, I don't mean to be, I mean, yeah, I do mean to be blunt and, and abrupt. Like it is psychological manipulation. You can call it encouragement. You can call it tweaking. But in order to convince people to buy things, that they would like or need, you do sort of sometimes have to convince them to do that. And there are tactics to do that. It's only unethical if they don't really need the product or if your product is crappy and you know that. What are the tactics that work? Fear of missing out is a tactic that works. I think fear of the problem, whatever it is, not going away, which is different than missing out. I think um, probably scarcity, that's a good tactic. If there's only a few and you do need something, um, I think the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, probably up to level three, are all very good tactics. If you threaten 
or pose a threat on some unconscious level to, I mean, the basic ones are food, sleep, shelter, and then it goes on to be, you know, being liked and feeling love and being popular or having it all together or success as you go up and having a feeling of, I won't have this if. Those are all good tactics. And most good marketers can do that in an honest way. So it sounds like I'm exp- like explaining how to be dishonest, but the truth is that that I'm actually talking about like, you know, these are real things. I mean, you know, I, I don't want to say that like, oh, if you don't buy my course, you'll be unpopular, you'll lose your home. Like that's ridiculous. But if you're a termite person, you do kind of want to tell people what termites do to your house if you don't get rid of them. Like this needs to be a fear tactic because people otherwise will just be like, chew it up. Chew it up, termites. Like, they don't know. You have to teach people. Like, no, this is going to ruin your house. You'll have nowhere to live. But for an online course, it is more about, like, if you want this level of success, I know the ways you can have it. So you can either buy this course or continue to struggle. And it that is a true statement a lot of times. Not all the time, but a lot of times. Do you have an example of somebody, and you don't have to name names, but that's gone over the line? So I'm, I'm assuming that a lot of time, I mean, I know this is, you know, in the beginning of this podcast, but I know that there are going to be a lot of like discussions about online marketing, but all of my marketing knowledge comes from observing and being educated in all marketing, television marketing, radio marketing, print marketing, like all, the online thing didn't happen until I was halfway through my career. So as far as what is over the line marketing. I would say when I was a kid, you know, a lot of beer commercials about hot girls and being near a pool, like all of that was ridiculous because if you actually see a person drinking Bud Light on a regular basis, on any kind of daily basis, there's no hot chicks around and they're certainly not at a pool. So that's completely misleading. I love that. (laughs) They are like dribbling down their shirt, right? Like stomp. I mean, I'm making a lot of assumptions, but the the image that they put out is just insane to make you want to drink beer regularly. Like you don't turn into a a guy that can get hot chicks in any way, shape or form. Um, Yeah, I think sexist, very sexist comment on alcohol and society. Anyway, that's a whole nother rabbit hole. I do think as far as online, the whole six to seven figure marketing statements, those statements are usually not true. Or the people teaching them don't know that those statements aren't true because they don't have any other responsibilities other than making money. Like they have no children and no elderly that they're taking care of. They're not married. They don't have other responsibilities other than working like a dog and and reaping in the rewards. So like any course that offers you six to seven figures, if those people don't have children, then you should not take that course if you do have children. Because if you have children, you need to figure out a way to work around that. Those are all, I think, over the line. I, don't, I, I wish we could sell things without having to talk about how much money people are going to make. But I mean, that is the number one thing people want. You were talking about the, the Maslow's hierarchy, right? And you were yeah. saying, I mean, for a lot of people, money is food. Money is housing security. True. Money is all of those things. That's true. It's true. But I mean, you can have food and shelter without having seven figures. <laughs> true. I mean, you can't sell a course by saying you'll keep your house. So it has to be like, it has to be a little bit more razzle-dazzle than that, right? So it should be like, you'll be able to take off work. 
So what are the um, the most annoying questions that podcasters ask you about marketing their podcasts? <laughs> wow. Um, I think the most annoying questions are the ones that are always trying to get at right versus wrong. So like how many times a day should I post? That is an annoying question. I don't know your audience. I don't know how interesting you are. I don't know what your graphics look like. I mean, and I mean, as a consult, as a consultant, you know, of course, I'm, I do know those things with my clients. But in general, I find those questions to be like you're asking the wrong question. The question isn't how many times you should post a day in order to have X. The question is, what do you have to say that they need to hear? And how often does that ha- If you only have something brilliant to say once a week, or if you can't be bothered, then if I tell you four times, that's going to be like torture. But some people naturally have something funny to say four times a day. And they either enjoy posting it for other people to see or they don't. Um, so I don't think there's a, def- a definitive answer. It's the same with what time of day should I post or which channels should I use? Like those are all very personal questions. It's like saying which, it's like asking another person, what underwear should I buy? I don't know. I don't sit in it. You will sit in it. You have to know what shape your butt is and what kind of underwear will suit that butt. I don't know. And the, but I think because there's a right answer that those are the types of questions that are asked a lot. There's no right answer, but the answer is do it. Just do something, do some, see, play, experiment, see what, see what works for your audience. I think also like, because people are not naturally marketers, there are a lot of people that are learning that for the first time or never wanted to learn that, but now they're being forced to, they just want a template, a life template that they can follow. And that, does not exist. So what should, what, what's the right question? What should they be asking? I think the right question to ask as far as marketing goes are, um, what kind of things can I post on a regular basis? What kinds of things are other people interested in in general? What types of content work the best for my specific audience? Um, what types of things do I enjoy reading? that I can put out for other people to enjoy reading questions like how much time should I spend creating content? Should I outsource content, this or that? What can I outsource? What do I have to do myself and what can I give for someone else to do? What can I sell while still remaining authentic are good questions. Um, How many sponsors should I have without looking like all I want is money? That's a good question. That, there is a definitive what, answer. What's the Again, answer on that one? I mean, until you feel annoying. Like with three ads in our show, I feel like that's a good amount. I don't feel annoying talking about three different sponsors. But once we did five and I felt very annoying, I was annoying myself. And if you're annoying yourself, that's a good hint that uh, you should stop and slow But it sounds like bit. your so. gut is in tune, right? I mean, you, you have a good sense of what will work. So yeah. here's a, a follow-up question. You know, all those things that you said were the questions people should be asking really had to do with finding their voice in a lot of ways and authentically connecting with their audience and their market. And at the same time, at the beginning of this interview, we were talking about some of the most effective tactics. And those were these Mm -hmm. things like tapping into the Maslow's hierarchy and into fear and into scarcity and stuff. Where's the balance? Between tactics and authenticity? Yeah. 
I mean, that's such an interesting question <laughs> because I don't see them as out of whack because to me, marketing something means you are giving people a gift. It's if you're if you're doing it in the in the right way, you're actually gifting someone your knowledge and your reputation and your experience. You I mean if it's not your product certainly then it's something that you have experience with that you've enjoyed that you think will help other people and that's a nice thing to do, not an evil thing to do. It's true that if you point out that x y and z will happen if you don't do or that you'll run out of time to get the thing or if you I mean there are tactics that work in order to motivate people but I think that's because people need motivation to act on everything not just to buy the thing you want them to buy but like legitimately they need motivation for everything and and especially online people they are the most fickle the most in a hurry the least patient you know they're they are like ADD all over the screen, you have to call their attention with something in order to get them to see the gift you're giving. And that's why I think the balance becomes out of whack when when there's desperation. If you're desperate for people to act on the thing you need, they can smell it like a stink and it just doesn't work. If you're doing some kind of evil, evil psychological experiment, I think that's that's over the line as well. But I think for the most part, as long as you are doing something through the good of your heart and through integrity and through coming from a place with good character, then I don't think people feel sold to. And that's where the balance is. The balance is you have to know um, in your soul that you're doing something good for other people. And then I think those tactics just kind of fall into place with honesty and integrity. But that part's important. So, so I'll talk about podcasting because that's really okay. what you're what you're known for, right? And um, so, say someone is a fledgling podcaster, and they get the part about being genuine mm -hmm. and talking about the things that they believe in and speaking in a way that is from their heart. And they say, "But Jessica, I'm just not getting listeners. What do I have to?" do you have to tell people about your show and you have to do that more than just on your show <laughs> right. <laughs> thank you that's an obvious i appreciate that no, no but i just i just i'm imagining now this uh, the poor fledgling podcaster just being like damn it like over and over again listen to my show they say on their show that no one is <laughs> right or download and subscribe download and subscribe download and subscribe share it share it share it share it I think the way to get more listeners is social media. And the reason I think that is because of the amount of people that are on social media versus the amount of people that podcast. I think you go where everyone is and then you tell them what else to do. You need to give them a call to action or, you know, that's why I think audiograms are so popular with podcasters right now, because you can literally give someone like a virtual sample, like a tasting of your podcast without them having to do any kind of commitment or any kind of work to, go on their phone, find the link. You know, once somebody's listening to a podcast, they've already done a ton of work to find it. So you have to make it easier for them. And social media is a great way of doing it. And I think also another good way of finding listeners is to be on other people's podcasts because they already know what they're doing. So that's a perfect audience because they already know how to download and how to listen and hopefully that they're regular listeners. So I think that's a very good tactic. Those are my two favorite tactics, being on other shows 
and social media. And then the third tactic I think is to offer freebie of some kind and run a Facebook ad to it because that's your audience and you're grabbing their email and then you can email them every time there's a new episode. And even if they never listen, you're growing different aspects of your platform, which I think is so important. There are so many podcasters out there that have really strong platform here, but not necessarily here. And I'm actually a perfect example of that. My podcast probably gets like 800 downloads a week and it has done that for five years, but our Facebook now has 18,000 women in it. Our email now has 10,000. Our, you know, our Twitter is now reaching around probably like 20,000 with the three of like with my account and Elsie's account and the She Podcast account. So just because you, they're not listening doesn't mean they're not interested in, in other places. So I think branching your platform out is important, not just to get more listeners, but so you just have more reach, period. On social media, we talked about how crowded it is. How does somebody stand out? Well, you can either do a lot of work in making yourself stand out. And by that, I mean going above and beyond your own personality to be charming, charismatic, or colorful if it's Instagram, um, colorful, filtered, unique, artistic, funny. If you're none of those things, <laughs> maybe you shouldn't be doing it. Uh, you have a bit more of a challenge, but that's what I'm saying. You have to go above and beyond your per personality to find one of those things that you can do. And, you know, each person, I mean, I've met a few exceptions, but most people are fascinating. They just don't realize why they're fascinating yet. And so I actually have a course in the She Podcast membership, the Super Squad, called the um, Five-Day Facebook Challenge that helps people, like, if they're not getting good engagement, just on their personal profile, it's like five days of experiments. Post something like this, and I give them a prompt, like, I wish I was blank instead of blank because it doesn't matter what you fill in. People are going to be interested in that and they will comment. People comment because they like to be asked questions. They want to be involved in the conversation. They all think that they're funny and smart and fascinating. So giving people prompts to show that is a really good way of getting engagement. So you don't necessarily have to be the most engaging person in the room. You just have to know how to invoke other people to converse with you. And that's a skill that you can learn. Um, and it's, a, it's something that makes you stand out. And I also think that, I mean, there's also an exercise about writing down. Do you remember when Facebook first started, we were writing down like 25 things no one knows about you? That exercise is extremely helpful in figuring out why you're fascinating and interesting. Extremely helpful. And there will be a theme that you don't even know you have yet. But I think people just, you know, don't think they're that interesting. But everyone is. I love that idea that everyone's fascinating and they just don't know how. Yeah, because they're used to themselves. They don't know that they're interesting. They're probably bored by it by now. So we've been talking mostly in this context, uh, and I guess it's because the world you work in centers around it, is marketing yourself. But what about marketing a brand? I think brands have very specific personalities as well. You have to assign a brand a personality because... I mean, an, an, an exercise that you do when you're working for a large corporation, and I did marketing for Subaru, just as an example, Subaru corporate headquarters. Our brand, our target audience had full names, lives, personalities, 
We know what kind of car they drive, what kind of magazines they watch, what kind of stuff they do on the weekends, what they eat. We knew everything about them and they were totally made up. But, but that's kind of how you define your brand is who you're for. And because they're for people with families and people with dogs and people who like to be outside and people who feel stifled by being inside for too long or women who live in Arizona or men who live in Canada or just whatever, that becomes the brand's personality. And then when they came out with love, it what makes a, it's what makes a Subaru a Subaru. People who have Subarus are ridiculously brand loyal. They will not buy another type of car because it's the safest or the most rugged or the this or the that. Much like podcast audiences, the Subaru audience is a bit obsessive. And they play into that because they like knowing that they're making something that people stick to until death. Not every brand is like that. You know, like, like I was Victoria's Secret likes to seem kind of posh, but also approachable, right? They're not that kind of lingerie that you buy when you're uber wealthy or a princess. It's when you want to feel like a princess, but on like a teenager budget, you know, and they get that. That's why they started making that brand pink because it was more teenager and a little more sporty and it kind of looks like sometimes high school letterman jacket and stuff like that's a whole personality. This brings me to another question I wanted to ask. When you're marketing and you have this avatar or this personality that you're selling to, how important is it to be targeting and imagining diverse populations as you're doing this? I mean, you, you think about who's already a customer but is it important to be bringing in new customers or does it only matter that you're using images of diverse populations? Well, I mean, I'm hoping that this is under the assumption that most people want a diverse audience because people who don't care don't think about these things or have this question. So if you care long enough to care that you're using even diverse images, it means you want to appeal to a more diverse audience, which is, I mean, in my opinion, a good thing, but certainly not mandatory for everyone, right? I think as long as you are inclusive in your language, I mean, the, I think the point is to be relatable to all people. Like Tracy Morgan, I've seen him and heard him interviewed a bunch of times and I've seen him live on stage. And one of my favorite things he says is like people ask him if he prefers black audiences to white audiences or how does he know jokes are going to work? And he goes, you could be standing in front of literally anyone. And if you do a fart joke, people will laugh because farts are funny. And this is how I do my humor. People like dick jokes, they like fart jokes, they, they all can relate to the, everyone can relate to these things. It doesn't matter if I'm black or white, I can make a room full of corporate white men laugh because everyone does these things. So I'm going to push back a little bit. I mean, in terms of diversity, I'm thinking gender too. And honestly, I don't think dick jokes are as funny <laughs> as a lot of guys do. Fair enough. I mean, and that's true that, so, so that's true that he will appeal to a certain audience, like it or not, but, but for him, the race the race issue is not an issue because what he tries to talk about is relatable for just people in general. And I guess I'm, I'm just pushing back because it's a philosophically an interesting question. It is an interesting question. I mean, and, and the gender one is one that I both play into and rebel against at the same time with different other things. Like I, I, our brand is specifically very feminine, but I try not to do pink and purple because I know that even though it's feminine, there are lots of non-binary or LGBTQ people that aren't, that aren't attracted to pink and purple everything all the time. So I try to mix in 
a feel that is positive and colorful and friendly without being specifically male or female. However, I noticed that other brands in our space are extremely male. That look, the font, the feel when you get there is very, it's very, it's not, I don't want to say fraternity brother, but it's very, you know, orange, navy, white with, um, again, collegiate lettering or long blocky lettering. I think it's just, they, they, they are branding themselves and that's fine. But I think on some level you have to also brand for the people you want to attract. And if half of the audience is female, then gray is probably not your best bet with orange. You know, you should probably do something that's a little bit more, I don't know. You have an avatar, you have an image of your customer that you speak to. And if that image, for example, say you're a large podcasting group that is currently run by men. Yeah, yeah. And you don't, so you imagine people like you as your audience. And so you market to people like you. Should you be doing that or should you break out of that? You need to break out of it on some level. I think, uh, so this is, I, I know you're speaking philosophically, but both of the other conferences that are, the podcasting conferences that are run by men have had conversations with Elsie and I either collectively or separately. I'm just going to jump in for people who don't know. Elsie Escobar is your partner and she podcasts. And she's worked in podcasting a really long time. And and she and I have both had conversations with other conference creators about how important it is to get speakers with different voices that when you hire the same people to speak every year even if it is a diverse person you're still not giving other people a chance even if you want the keynote to be a white man or a black woman like you're not giving someone else a chance if you hire the same people every year it's just not a good idea because the idea of diversity is to hear lots of different voices and lots of different point of views and you can't do that if you are doing the same thing because if it's not broke don't fix it because it is broke if you're doing it the same every single time that's broken that's a broken thing I think it's important definitely to consider diversity but I think so there's an issue I think with people when they market about diversity I think the biggest issue right now is that if you know you're not racist and you know that you love people of all races and colors and genders and sexualities then then your next step is to go I clearly don't have this problem because I love all people so I'm just going to do things the way I've always done them because I'm fine but you're not fine because you're not addressing the fact that everything you've done up until this point has had some level of systemic racism because that's just how everyone is. And also that unless you go specifically out of your way to find the voices that you've not showcased so far, you're not, you're just part of the problem and not the solution. You can't keep doing the same thing over and over and over and expect that you're fine just because you like black people. That is not how it works. You have to say, okay, I've had a white guy talk about this every year. Is there someone out there who's black that can talk about editing or who's black that can talk about marketing or, you know, there are other people, there are other companies, there are other points of view that I think we need to hear from. Even if it's the same subject, it's still nice to hear how other people think about things. But I don't think that enough people go out of their way to make sure that those people are being represented 
even if it's just, even if we're just talking about a podcaster and their guests, I think you have to specifically go out of your way to find people that you want to talk to of different diverse backgrounds, or you end up talking to the same people as yourself because most people want to talk to people that they want to emulate. And if you're a white Jew like me, then you'll find, you'll find other white Jewish women or white women. You don't go out of your way to find something different because that's not what's in your face all the time. It's an effort. It takes a specific effort to go outside of that. I personally think it's important. I think if you don't think it's important, then you don't have to do it. So, I mean, and that's also your choices. If you are one of those people who find diversity important, you have to be willing to say, I'm not participating in this because you haven't thought of everyone. Hmm. It's a hard thing to say to someone. Um, I want to, I want to, it's funny that you asked me that question though, about how important is it? Because I just asked Elsie this yesterday. I said, what if we, we have a diversity statement. We encourage diverse voices to ask to speak. We market to a diverse audience. I said, but what if we do this? And no matter what we do or what cartwheels we turn, our audience is just going to be 40-year-old white women. Does that mean we failed in some way? And she was like, no, as long as you're creating a safe space for everyone, it doesn't necessarily matter who shows up to that space. You self-identified as a white Jewish woman. I did. Middle-aged. And, and um, <laughs> you know, we always talk about niching down and speaking to your personal audience and people like you. And at the same time, we talk about the importance of inclusiveness and finding new voices and bringing new people in. And I think that could be confusing for someone. I mean, it's confusing for me. That's why I asked Elsie yesterday, like, what happens if we do all the diverse work we could possibly do and still only white people want to hang out with us? And she said, well, that's fine. As long as you've created a space where people feel like as long as people don't go, oh, that's just a bunch of white girls talking to other white girls. And there are conferences out there like that. I think as long as people of other diverse backgrounds feel comfortable, then we know we've done at least the job we've wanted to do, which is to keep things open. If, if we only appeal to a certain level of age or a certain educational demographic or a certain, you know, then fine. That's okay. I mean, that's probably true. And it's going to be probably the majority is going to, I mean, Elsie's mid forties. I'm mid forties. She's Hispanic. I'm white. Like we both are, have college degrees and we both are married. We're both straight. We both have kids. Like I'm sure that people who are like that are going to be more likely to um, be in our audience than people who are the opposite of that. But I am proud of the fact that there are lots of people who are opposite of that, that still can take advantage of our education and our knowledge, which is what matters to us not necessarily the demographics. And I think depending on the thing you're marketing, whether it is for podcasting or, you know, in Chris's case or in Joe's case, you know, online courses and, and information and knowledge, I think, I think you do have to take an extra step to make sure people understand that you are open to literally anyone who wants to learn this information. I think, especially if you're white, you have to go out of your way and say, this is a space where Everyone is welcome. No one will be disrespected. No one will be made to feel stupid. And we have accommodations for those who can't listen or who can't watch or who can't read. And so as long as you're accommodating to all people, I think it's important that you say that. Otherwise, people don't know. So what do you think is the biggest opportunity for people on the horizon right now? Honestly, I mean, like people have been talking about how video is the wave of the future for so long. And I... 
I don't want to say I detest video, but it's not my favorite because I think it takes so long to make a good one. And I'm also get very obsessive about editing. So I know that that's a big deal. I know TikTok is a really good opportunity if you can use it properly. I see, I see people on TikTok that are very famous online marketers that are getting zero places with TikTok. They just, they are treating it like it's a YouTube channel and it's not, you have to be a crazy freaky goofball on TikTok to get any kind of attention there. And if you're just like, hi, today we're going to talk about Facebook ads. You're done. You can't do that on TikTok. But I do think it's a huge opportunity if you can figure out TikTok is to use that to market things. Have you figured it out? I am popular on TikTok, but not for anything relating to marketing. I had foxes living in my backyard in the spring and I took videos of it and put it to funny music. And now it's had millions of watches and I have like 15,000 followers, but not for anything that I've marketed or sold. I just thought they were cute. I watch it a lot, but I feel like the video camera sucks my soul. I feel I'm not good. I don't think that I'm, video is just not my strength. It's interesting because you're such a visual person. Right now, honestly, the, if, I could, if I could do one thing with my marketing skills at this very moment, it would be a drop shipping t-shirt store. How would you market your t-shirt business? How would you stand out? I mean, it's already getting to be a crowded space. You think? Yeah. You know, I'm blessed with the ability of, both being funny and having a little bit of graphic design knowledge and background. So like I walk around with a to-do list that's just for t-shirt sayings. And when I hear something funny or see a funny t-shirt, I look up to see if it's copywritten. You know, I also went through a phase where, because I read somewhere that Etsy, an Etsy shopper was making face masks. And as soon as she made one that says Trump 2020, they started flying out the door. And I was like, I'll take that money. (laughs) I'll make that mask. I will take that money. I don't even think you have to like the product. I mean, just putting it up and seeing what it will do is a fun experiment, you know? So I'm circling back now because we talked about this whole idea of, you know, where the line is in marketing. And I think you were kind of saying, well, if you believe in the product, it's okay. Yeah. If I'm printing a, I mean, look, I can either put, a big shiny set of teeth on there and make it funny for people to wear a mask like that. Or, I mean, if you know someone's buying, yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily, listen, I'm not, I'm not trying to convince anyone to vote for him, but I'm saying if if you're going to vote for him and you're buying face masks, I will take your money. I love being challenged on this because I wanted, I could be completely out of my mind about it. And I've not done this, by the way, for those of you who are listening, I've not done this at all yet. I set up a Fiverr store to do voiceovers, right? And I got one gig and I did it and that was fun. And then I got a message and they said, would you be willing to do political commercials? And I said, I would love to, but it might depend on the candidate. Right. So they sent me the scripts and there was no way. I mean, the scripts were not something that I agree with at all. And I had this conversation with myself like, Somebody else is going to do the voiceover. It's just money. Like, no, I, no, no. I agree with you. I could never do a mask that said, go back where you came from. <laughs> I mean, that's something I don't agree with. But pe- this is just a, a, this is just, you know, a candidate's name and the year. It's not saying you should vote for him or that you shouldn't. But if you're going to and you're buying this, I will take the money. But yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't encourage people to, I don't think I could do what you're saying. I could not encourage someone to vote for someone on the basis of merits that I don't agree with. 
I would never tell someone to vote for that candidate. I'll just go on the record right now and say, I don't think anyone should vote for Donald Trump for any reason at any time. But if they're going to not wear a mask or wear the mask that I make and pay me for it, great. That's a good distinction. I I really appreciate that distinction. Yeah. I don't think I could convince someone to do something I didn't agree with. Absolutely not. I think people think there's this, right? People need to sell things. We need to sell our products in order to survive. We even need to sell ideas. We like, this is a part of life that's really important, but at the same time, there's this fine line and I'm just sort of interested in exploring where that line is. And at the same time, how, how you can be effective. Can you make a mask with Donald Trump's name on it? Is that the same thing as telling people to take a course that, you know, somewhere else, all the information is online for free. Like for the for the second thing, you're clearly selling a product that you know isn't worth diddles. I think if you're selling a course and the information is available free elsewhere, there are people that are willing to pay for the convenience, for the fact that they know you, that you have that you have, uh, you know, authority on the subject that they like for me. I would be willing to pay you for a course that was free elsewhere because I knew that it would be assembled in a convenient way. And I knew that I could trust the information was coming from you. So that to me feels different. I guess the real question is if I'm selling a mask or a shirt or a hat with the Trump name, am I selling Trump or am I selling the gear? I guess you carry it down the line, right? So carry it down the line. I'm selling a hat. Who's wearing it? Why are they wearing it? What's the effect of that? Yeah. And of course, it's purpose. I mean, you're right. It can't be terrible for everyone. But as a podcaster, let's just say, for example, you know that they're encouraging everyone to sign up for Anchor. Then what do you do? See, that's different. Because you know that's not good advice. Exactly. To me, selling bad advice would be unethical. But selling good advice that someone could get free, I... That's maybe a line there, too, is that not being worth the money is a matter of opinion. Bad advice is bad advice. Bad advice is bad advice. And if you know it's bad advice, you can't sell that. It's like a medicine that doesn't work. Yeah. What if sometimes people will buy a thousand T-shirts thinking they'll sell a thousand T-shirts, but they don't. And they don't because they fray and the colors run. You've sold 200. What do you do with the other 800 t-shirts? You can either figure out a way to sell that shit, knowing full well that it's a pile of shit, or you could donate it. Well, so is it defective or is it just that you got too many of them? It's defective on some level. Maybe it makes people itch. That's a, see, now that's a line too. Colors running is not the same as a rash. That's a medical issue. (laughs) This is a very complicated issue. (laughs) Fun conversation though, to like figure out where these lines are for myself. Okay. So they're itchy. Now, is it okay if you say, Hey, you know what? These shirts are itchy for some people. So I'm going to sell them at 50%. And you say, you get to get this shirt at half the price because it's itchy. I think it's unethical if you say no refunds. What if you told them it was itchy before they bought it? That's why, but you can't, if it does end up itchy for you, tough poodles, you're keeping it. What if you charge 100%, but you say a lot of people find this shirt itchy? I think I just would not be able to sleep at night from the guilt. Even if you told people? Yeah, for 100% of the price. People are stupid. (laughs) 
I think I think smart people have to protect stupid people from themselves on some level. Do you really? Yeah. I mean, so that's a really interesting question because I would have thought, I mean, so I guess that's that's like smoking cigarettes, drinking alcohol, sugar, right? No, but some people are more affected by them than others. Some people can't stop themselves. I mean, that's like heroin. Yeah, Definitely but obviously we know it's unethical to sell heroin, even if we say like, what Only if you said it's illegal though, right? No. I'm saying like pharmaceutical, pharmacies used to sell that though. Yeah, like, but they were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but they didn't know that at the time, or maybe they did, and they just had it a surplus. <laughs> I mean, this is, comes back to our T-shirt, right? They had a surplus. The other thing is, like you said, it may not itch for everyone, right? Or is it a guaranteed itch? Because if it's a guaranteed itch, then yeah. Well, I say, okay, so it may not itch for everyone. I would have thought, I would have thought that if you told people that it itched, that it would be okay to sell it. But you're saying no, that you still need to have a refund available. I would want them to sign. I mean, yeah, only because you tell people things and they don't listen. You just have to feel like on some, some issues, you have to save people from themselves. I think for me, the question is, I guess. Okay, what if it had COVID as part of the t-shirt? You say <laughs> there's COVID in this t-shirt. Here you go, $10. Well, I guess there's two parts to the question. One part is, you know, it, what I thought I was going to be asking was the question of using unethical tactics like fear mongering or, you know, extreme misleading scarcity tactics and those kinds of things, like extreme tactics. But this other question is really interesting, which is what is the responsibility of a marketer as it relates to the product that they're selling? I'm also starting to get this weird God complex because of the fear mongering and the, and the misleading tactics you said, because the scarcity thing is something that I have. It can be complete bullshit. Right. Like just because you have a cart closing doesn't mean you're not going to take 20 more people the next day. Of course you will. It's stupid. I've done that too. Have you ever seen this movie? There's a movie with um, Dudley Moore where he works for an advertising agency and goes completely insane. But basically he ends up in a mental institution with people and starts doing fully honest marketing. And so on a Ferrari ad, it says, for those of you with a small penis, <laughs> right? Like that's like the brutal honesty is like, you're only going to buy this if you have a Napoleon complex or you're only, you know, here's a diet that's never going to work for you. That kind of stuff. And I mean, it does kind of eye open like how manipulative marketing can be. So then if you're a marketer, are you naturally a manipulator? Like, and teaching marketing, are you teaching people to manipulate others? I mean, at the beginning of this conversation, I was like, you do have to tweak people. They need tweaking. And I still think that's true. The question of ethics and how ethics come into it, I, I thought, and maybe I still believe that it's about whether or not you're selling a defective product. But some people are desperate to do that. They have to do that, right? So where is that line, I guess, between the consumer knowing what they're doing and the, and the seller knowing what they're doing? How honest should you be? I don't know anymore. You've mixed me all up, Marion. I feel like I've done my job. <laughs> You've mixed me all up. Well, so we're, we're, we're about to sell a membership. 
Can you promise someone who's shy that they'll meet all kinds of friends in a community? Can you promise someone who's not motivated that they'll learn how to get sponsors from day one? If you want to do that in the membership, you can do that. But I think in in this case, I'm promising and selling potential because I can't sell you the results because you have to create those results. I love that at its essence, you're selling potential. Yeah, the fear mongering and the scarcity, all of that are tactics to sell the potential of what your life could be if you work that whatever system that's being sold to you. And I mean, that applies to everything. I mean, it probably applies to Weight Watchers and it applies to gym memberships and, you know, that machine isn't going to make those muscles. You still have to do it. Is there anything I should have asked you that, you know, on this subject, is there any advice for people that you think they should have in general about marketing? Yes. I would like people to, when they're writing a marketing statement, I want them to sit in front of their computer and like in their head, open their, their chest up to reveal your beating heart and then pour love into the people that you're trying to market to pour love mentally into the people that you want to help. Then write your marketing because It will not feel slimy. It will not feel sleazy. It will not seem like a sales tactic. It will be authentic. It will be honest and it will be with genuine, it will be written with genuine affection for the people that you want to work with you or that you want to work with. And I think that makes a huge difference in how you write everything is sit for a second and be like, okay, you're the person that needs me and then start writing. You know, rather than what do I need from them? What do I want? What can I have? What are my goals? What are my things? I've worked out today. I'm working hard. I'm tired. I'm ex- None of that should be in your head when you're writing marketing. It should only just be about how can we do this together where you'll feel like a, a better person and I'll feel like I've helped someone. That's what you want. It's so good. So thank you, Jessica. This was awesome. I'm so grateful that you engaged in this ridiculous and fun conversation with me. Thank you for having one of those conversations with me. They are my favorite kind. And and you want to plug your show, your platform, your stuff, because people can learn a lot more from you. Sure. Yes. So our membership, by the time this goes live, should be open. It is called the She Podcast Super Squad. You can go to ShePodcasts.com and find out everything about it, as well as our conference and our podcast. So ShePodcasts with an S at the end.com. Thank you, Marion. This is great. Yeah, it was great. Thank you. Although you didn't have a different kind of analogy for poop in a box, um, you did you, you did have that great analogy up front about how no one can tell you what kind of underwear you wear. So that will probably be the, <laughs> probably be the equivalent. It should be the title of the show. Yes. First no of- one should dictate your underpants. Yeah, that's the title. Great.